Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As Russia's intervention in Ukraine enters its second month, the U.S. and NATO continue to win the war of words and perception management with a wall-to-wall media campaign unrivaled by anything in our memory. We speak to journalists John Jeter and Ben Norton. The disgusting, insulting attempts to try to rewrite the history of the Nazi Holocaust to portray Russia, which defeated the Nazis as the new Nazi Germany is so disgusting. The former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, on MSNBC, he actually whitewashed Hitler, claiming that Putin is worse than Hitler because Hitler apparently never killed Germans, which is an insane statement. And the first black woman nominated to sit on the Supreme Court faces a barrage of racist attacks and right-wing dog whistles. While outside the Supreme Court, her detractors and supporters square off with insults and praise. What do we want? Confirmation! When do we want it? Now! All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, with just five media conglomerates owned by billionaires controlling almost all information and entertainment in the United States, lies of commission and omission about the Russia-Ukraine conflict are leaving Americans in the dark. This week, an in-depth investigation by journalist Dan Cohen in Mint Press News reveals that the false image of Ukraine as a virtually unarmed, mostly civilian fighting force standing up successfully to the Russian Goliath has been created by an army of foreign political strategists, Washington, D.C. lobbyists, and a network of intelligence-linked media outlets. Cohen writes that, quote, Kiev has churned out a steady stream of sophisticated propaganda aimed at stirring public and official support from Western countries. The campaign includes language guides, key messages, and hundreds of propaganda posters, some of which contain fascist imagery, such as the symbol for the fascist Azov Battalion integrated into Ukraine's army. The material even praises Ukrainian Nazis and collaborators, such as the notorious World War II criminal Stepan Bandera, responsible for the torture and massacres of scores of Jews, ethnic Poles, Roma, and other people. Cohen adds, quote, Ukraine's propaganda strategy earned it praise from a NATO commander who told the Washington Post, quote, they are really excellent in stratcom, media, info ops, and also psyops. The Post ultimately conceded that Western officials say that while they cannot independently verify much of the information that Kiev puts out about the evolving battlefield situation, including casualty figures for both sides, it nonetheless represents highly effective stratcom. Cohen added that more than 150 public relations firms have joined the propaganda blitz, which is spearheaded by PR network co-founder Nikki Regazzoni and Francis Ingham, a top public relations consultant with close ties to the UK government. As part of the campaign, Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs distributed a dossier folder with war propaganda, strategies, and materials. Cohen said that these materials include the now infamous Snake Island incident, which was quickly proven false, in which Ukrainian border guards were reported to have been killed 
after they told an approaching Russian warship to go F yourself. Zelensky held a press conference announcing that he would award the men the Hero of Ukraine medal as mainstream media spread the story widely. However, the supposedly dead soldiers quickly turned up alive and well, proving their heroic stand to be a farce. But the construction of such false incidents and scenarios reported faithfully by corporate media have contributed mightily to what experts call the fog of war, in which there have been two quite different and distinct narratives coming from the U.S. and NATO on one side and from Russia on the other. Of course, one purpose of the fog of war is to claim that your side is winning and that the other side is losing. With its control over much of global communications, Western corporate media has continued to spin this narrative in the favor of Ukrainians and paint Russian forces as floundering and stalled, not capturing cities in the face of unexpectedly stiff and brave resistance. Russian media says that, in contrast, that their operation is not to capture cities, but to demilitarize and denazify the country. And they say that, unlike the U.S. in the invasion of Iraq, they do not intend to level Kiev. Many military experts say that Russia is succeeding. While Western media reports on the destruction of the city of Maripol, Russian news outlets report on intense shelling of ethnic Russian regions of eastern Ukraine, where 14,000 have been killed during the last eight years before this invasion, and that is never reported on in Western media. Now, a break in the Western narrative occurred this week with an article written by military analyst William M. Arkin in Newsweek, and it was titled, Putin's bombers could devastate Ukraine, but he's holding back. As destructive as the Ukraine war is, Russia is causing less damage and killing fewer civilians than it could, according to U.S. intelligence experts. Arkin goes on to write in the story, quote, we need to understand Russia's actual conduct, end quote, says a retired Air Force officer, a lawyer by training who has been involved in approving targets for U.S. fights in Iraq and Afghanistan. The officer currently works as an analyst with a large military contractor advising the Pentagon and was granted anonymity in order to speak candidly. Quote, if we merely convince ourselves that Russia is bombing indiscriminately or that it is failing to inflict more harm because its personnel are not up to the task or because it is technically inept, then we are not seeing the real conflict, end quote. In the analyst's view, Arkin writes, though the war has led to unprecedented destruction in the South and East, the Russian military has actually been showing restraint in its long-range attacks. But Arkin's coverage and analysis is the exception rather than the rule. The Western corporate media narrative that Russia is losing and bogged down may be designed to demoralize Russians and encourage Western mercenaries to go fight in Ukraine, but it is also giving the Biden administration the opportunity to counter Russian reports that Ukraine has U.S.-funded bioweapons labs. Now he claims this week that it is Russia that will use chemical weapons out of desperation. This is 
President Biden speaking on Monday, March 22nd. And so his back is against the wall. And uh, he's now he's talking about new false flags he's setting up, including he's asserting that we, America, have biological as well as chemical weapons in Europe. Simply not true. I guarantee you. They're also suggesting that Ukraine has biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. That's a clear sign he's considering using both of those. Biden repeated his threat on Thursday, saying that NATO would respond if chemical weapons were used, prompting alarm from analysts who recalled similar U.S. threats and accusations in the dirty war against Syria when President Bashar al-Assad was accused of using chemical weapons against his own people as he was actually winning the war. Four days of confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson ended Thursday with a variety of witnesses, including Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall and members of the American Bar Association, which gave Jackson its highest rating. The positive end of the hearings were in stark contrast to three days of Jackson being smeared as soft on child predators in previous sentencings and possibly acting as a secret agent to infuse American law with critical race theory. Senators Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and Marsha Blackburn were the most egregious in their lines of questioning and interruptions of Jackson, as compiled by the group We Demand Justice, which is advocating for Jackson on Twitter. Senator, would you please let her respond? No. Would you now agree with me? The habeas petition. I'm well aware the name changed. It probably changed from Bob Gates. The most difficult. No, answer my question. What I'm telling you. You you know the circumstances. Any of these defendants. You think. No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. 30 years. Three months in this case, Judge. Do you regret it? You haven't answered my question yet. Senator, more or less. That's exactly what you're saying. But my approach. But my question is, what if it. Penalties. Mr. Chairman, this is non she she has said photos at a time. How's it being committed now? Let, would she please go ahead. Her complete her answer. Good. Cut. Good. I understand. Absolutely Senator good. I hope you are. To do good. Allow her to finish, please. And I've tried to explain. You regret that many we're focusing on your on, on a standard form, which is what that I, is. I understand you've done a lot, Judge. And but can you provide a definition for the word woman? Not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. of the word ain't working. So you're not going to answer my question? No, I've answered your question and my answer. You haven't I've answered my question. I'm sitting here asking you. In that chart. Okay, Judge, you said that before. Do you think we should catch and imprison more murderers or fewer murderers? On a scale of one to ten... How faithful would you say you are? Do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that that babies are racist? Senator, I have not reviewed any of those books, any of those ideas. They don't come up in my work as a judge. When you sign on to a brief, does it not become your argument? It does not, Senator. Do I read that statement to say that you felt, given the circumstances of the time, they should all be released? No, Senator, you don't read it correctly. I will stand on my answer. The Judiciary Committee is expected to vote on Jackson's nomination on April 4th. 
Meanwhile, the ever rightward Supreme Court shocked voter advocates this week when it overturned a redistricting plan for Wisconsin that would have created a new black majority district in the Milwaukee area. The Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature made an emergency application to the Supreme Court because it objected to the creation of the additional black majority district, calling it, quote unquote, unconstitutional. The high court issued an unsigned majority order stating that Wisconsin, quote, committed legal error in its application, end quote, of previous U.S. Supreme Court decisions regarding the relationship between the constitutional guarantee of equal protection and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Justice Sonia Sotomayor described the majority's ruling as unprecedented, denouncing the majority decision as lawless. Representative Mondaire Jones, Democrat of New York, who supports expanding the high court, tweeted that, quote, the far right Supreme Court is so hostile to black political power that it reversed its own precedent from earlier this year to overturn Wisconsin maps, creating a new majority minority district, end quote. Last month, the Supreme Court issued an order allowing Alabama to use a congressional map that dilutes the power of blacks, which make up 27% of that state's population. In environmental news, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been seized on as an opportunity by fossil fuel investors. While consumers get hammered by high gas prices and spiking energy costs, the wealth of top fracking executives soars. Since January, the value of shares currently held by CEOs of eight leading fossil fuel companies has increased by nearly $100 million. Also, March 22nd was World Water Day, when organizations work to raise awareness of the 785 million people on our planet who do not have access to safe water and cannot bathe, brush their teeth, or keep their hands clean in a consistent manner. On March 26th, on Saturday from 1 to 3.30 p.m., organizations including Compassion Works International in Washington, D.C., will be participating in the worldwide rally against trophy hunting to speak out against the census slaughter of wildlife by the Safari Club International, which is located at 501 2nd Street Northeast in Washington, D.C. The main rally in Las Vegas will protest against the Safari Club International Conference there and the 50th anniversary of the Ultimate Sportsman's Market. At the market, the lives of hundreds of animals are sold off to the highest bidder. Compassionate Works International supports legislation that prohibits the ability of hunters to bring their so-called trophies back into the United States. And it stands with conservation groups across the world in developing strategies for sustaining and growing populations of wild animals that do not involve their slaughter. And finally, in culture and media, the new African Film Festival is happening here in D.C., in the D.C. area at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, until Thursday, March 31st. This year's in-person festival, sponsored by the Africa Now Project and AFI, features 28 films from 17 countries, including five U.S. or North American premieres. Additional highlights include Chad's official Oscar submission, Lingui, 
The Sacred Bonds from master filmmaker Mohammed Saleh Haroun. The documentary sequence includes Just a Movement, an exploration of the life and philosophy of the Nigerian-born Senegalese anti-colonial revolutionary scholar and artist Omar Blondin Diop, and The Last Shelter, set in the House of Migrants in Mali, which is a safe haven at the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. It welcomes those en route to Algeria in the north or on their way back after a failed attempt to make it to Europe. For more information and tickets, go to silver.afi.com. That's silver.afi.com. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. over there 
taken care of. Make sure that the black people are represented. Understand? By any means necessary. Thank you. That was Alabama State Representative Wandalyn Givon and before her, youth activist Anaya Vines speaking in front of the Supreme Court on Monday, March 21st, 2022. 
at a rally to support the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm excited to be joined by our media critic, John Jeter. He's a former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. And this month, we're also joined by journalist, writer, and filmmaker Ben Norton. Ben is editor-in-chief of the online platform show and podcast, Multipolarista. Welcome back to the show, John and Ben. Always a pleasure, Esther. Thanks for having me. Well, as you both know, I wanted to speak to you about the state of corporate media that we find ourselves in since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And I always take the time on this show to remind our listeners that February 24th was not when the war started, that since 2014, when the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine brought to power a government with strong ties to Nazis and anti-Russia elements, the government in Kiev has been at war with its own citizens in East Ukraine, primarily in the ethnic Russian region called the Donbass. And 14,000 Ukrainians have been killed in the eight years since that time. With that said, obviously, we don't usually hear about the last eight years in corporate media in this country or from the UK, like the BBC. And there's only information like from Zelensky. You know, I see him on TV, I hear him on the radio. And that means that the information is coming from his handlers and U.S. spy agencies or maybe PR firms. So I wanted to start by just pointing those facts out and talking about uh, and also recognizing the increased censorship we're seeing and the fact that uh, even people I talk to who were alive during the height of the Cold War say they've never seen anything like this in terms of the weaponization of media in a war that we're not even necessarily involved in. So I want to start by asking both of you if you can give me your impressions of corporate media coverage. And, you know, last week, last month, we called it a PSYOP, meaning like a psychological operation, like during the run up to the war in Iraq and during the Iraq war. But I thought that maybe we could drill down further and just kind of think about some of the biggest omissions in corporate media right now and some of the biggest lies that are being told to the American people. 
And you can start, Ben. Well, I think you put it perfectly. It is a PSYOP. It's a psychological operation. That is not some crazy conspiracy term. That is actually a segment of the U.S. military and other Western militaries. They have psychological operations officers. In fact, ironically, Twitter employs a member of the British military who oversees psychological operations. He's also an editor for Middle East policy at Twitter. So, I mean, that really shows how these big tech corporations are linked to Western governments and militaries. And it's not surprising to me that now on Ukraine, they are spreading nonstop propaganda on these corporate media platforms and these social media platforms that all act as stenographers for the U.S. government. I do want to remind listeners that every big Silicon Valley corporation is a U.S. government contractor. I mean, this isn't even to talk about CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. We all know that they regurgitate propaganda from the U.S. government. We know that they're full of former U.S. spies and military officers who are frequently on air providing so-called analysis. But I think we should also even look more deeply at Silicon Valley itself. We should look at Twitter, Facebook, which is owned by Meta, look at YouTube, which is owned by Google. We've seen massive censorship of anyone who challenges these Western government narratives about Ukraine. We've seen that Russian media outlets have been totally erased from all social media, including YouTube. And I live in Nicaragua. I, I'm not in the U.S. and I can't access many of these platforms now. It's hard to find access just to get the perspective of Russian media. It doesn't even necessarily mean you agree with it, but even to hear that perspective is no longer permitted in the so-called free Western democracies. And now we've also seen that Twitter and Facebook have been doing the same thing, purging these accounts, listing accounts as propaganda. And just for context here, we should understand that Google has large contracts with the CIA. It has large contracts with this Defense Department and Facebook as well. And Meta have they have many contracts with U.S. government agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, the Pentagon. I should mention that Google, which owns YouTube, also has contracts with U.S. police departments across the United States and has been involved in surveilling activists, Black Lives Matter activists, anti-war activists. And Twitter, I should mention, also has contracts with the U.S. government, including the Department of Homeland Security. So it's not that surprising to me to see this propaganda. But as you said, I think this is something certainly that I haven't seen in my life. And even people who live throughout the first Cold War are saying that this propaganda campaign is, is like nothing they've seen before. Right, exactly. John, did you want to add some more about the omissions and just the lies? Yeah, I would just witnessed. add as an OG in this game, you know, we've kind of seen, you and I at least, Esther, I think we're both a little bit older than Ben, but you and I have seen this kind of come full circle. So there's never been a full-throated debate between left and right in the United States, but certainly in the 80s, uh, even as recently as, the, as the, the early 90s, I think we saw a fuller debate about these kinds of political issues, even as recently as the Iraq war, when, of course, as we've talked about before, Esther, Judith Miller at the New York Times wrote these scandalous pieces, uh, really sort of led the United States into the war, the illegal war and occupation in Iraq. But she was 
demonized and excoriated by her fellow porters for that. We see no such thing happening now. And the propaganda, I, I, don't, I don't know that we can even call it propaganda. I think, I think there's another word for it that maybe has not been invented yet, but there is a blanketing of the United States in this lie. And the danger is that in the rest of the world, and I do mean in the rest of the world, even here in Costa Rica, I have conversations with taxi drivers and food vendors on the street that are much more informed about the geopolitics of the Russia-Ukraine conflict than I hear on American media. And think about this. I'll end with this. I purposefully tuned out the U.S. media. You know, I, I listen to dribs and drabs. But the most informed person the, or the most articulate person on the issue of war in Ukraine and I find him loathsome. I think he's a loathsome racist, right? But it's Tucker Carlson. He's the one who is the most reliable source in the mainstream media that I have heard since this war erupted in Ukraine. And that's a very, that's very telling and very dangerous. Yeah, it is very dangerous because what happens is that it gives him a level of credibility around this issue when he will not have that same type of anti-war stance exactly. when it comes to China, for example, right? So some people won't be able to tease out, you know, his racism, you know, from his like truth telling in this particular instance. But people keep talking about the fog of war. And I want to ask both of you about what sources you trust during this time. I've heard some people describe the fog of war as something that keeps them from really understanding what's really happening because they say that the Ukrainians are lying. Well, I've actually heard uh, Zelensky lying, but, but that the Russians are lying too. And the thing is, when it comes to getting any idea of what's really happening on the ground, you know, I've had to turn to like RT. I've had to turn to Sputnik News because at least I'm getting, like you said, Ben, some sense of what the other side is saying and thinking. I'm not getting that at all. In total violation of all those things they teach you in journalism school where, you know, you're supposed to get both sides and you're supposed to, you know, give both sides a chance to say something. It's just Russia and Russians, especially Putin, are just totally demonized and like they shall not speak. You know, like everything they say is called propaganda, whereas everything Zelensky, everything out of Zelensky's mouth is is like gospel. So I, I want to just get a sense of how do you get information that you trust at this point? Well, uh, the only two sides that we hear, of course, are the U.S. side and the European side, which are pretty much indistinguishable. That's the idea of both sides for mainstream corporate media in, in the West. And in terms of per getting good information... Unfortunately, it's hard work and a lot of it involves sifting through tons of junk to find the, the actual content, the actual facts. That's what I try to do with my journalism. There are other people on social media and alternative media. And unfortunately, I think that's really the only possibility is that we have to encourage people to listen to and watch and read alternative media like your show, Esther, like Breakthrough News. I have this new outlet called Multipolarista. There are many other outlets, you know, People's Dispatch. So I think we have to encourage independent and alternative media because we know that over 90% of the news media in the United States is controlled by five corporations. And the people who own those corporations are very closely linked to the U.S. government. They have a vested interest in advancing 
the foreign policy of the U.S. And I want to make another important point here about the bias and propaganda in the media. It's not only that no other alternative perspectives are presented. It's also that the perspective presented is presented without any evidence, and it's presented as undeniable facts. So we constantly see Fox, MSNBC, CNN, the New York Times, all these outlets, they will quote Ukrainian government officials, what they say as indisputable biblical truth, and you can never challenge it. And if you do, you're a Russian propagandist. That's not journalism. That's that's the literal definition of stenography, just reprinting what Ukrainian government officials claim without demanding any evidence, without interrogating it in any way. And really, we've seen the press has simply become stenography for Western governments. They have no criticism, no skepticism, and not only are there no alternative views, they don't even have facts. It's simply, this is what the government officials say, and they're anonymous officials, but they're smart and they're spies, and you have to believe them. Right. I've been particularly aware of that, um, you know, watching or listening to the coverage of Maripol, for example, and the fact that we know those of us who have studied or read or, you know, bothered to inform ourselves in any way about Ukraine, we know that that is the, the base of the Azov Battalion. And that brings up the whole issue of, you know, Nazis in Ukraine. But that's never mentioned, you know, the fact that there is this far right neo-Nazi or Nazi battalion, now a regiment within the Ukraine army, and that's their base. And they are intent to, you know, hold fast there and like, you know, maybe go down fighting. And but we don't we can't get that context because they refuse to even acknowledge that there are Nazis integrated into the Ukrainian army. But anyway, John. How do you sift through information and how do you, well, how I do you start uh, find beginning. facts? I've been interested in this since the coup in Ukraine in 2014 and the release of the Victoria Newland tapes where she is discussing who the United States State Department would like to install as their puppet. And so I have uh, relied on uh, a number of academic sources leading up to the war, people like John Mearsheimer, I think it's John Mearsheimer, the professor, uh, He's great, right? So I, yeah, I, would, I, would advise, yeah. I would advise anyone who wants to understand what's going on to look him up on YouTube and listen to some of his lectures on the subject. More contemporaneously, sort of more blow by blow, my primary source, the one I look to pretty much every day, they are a couple of pundits. Both are in Europe at the moment. I think Alex Christoforo, who is a, I think he is a Greek-Canadian living in Greece, and then Alexander Mercouris, who I think is a, I think he's British living in London at the time, right now. And they do, I think it's called the Durant. It's on YouTube. They are brilliant. I don't think I would agree with them on their politics overall, but in terms of, uh, and this is a a point I really want to bring up, even though I've I've sort of hammered it uh, ad nauseum with you, Esther, but they actually do reporting, right? They seem to have sources, both military and diplomatic sources, who are telling them what's going on on the ground. And they will say, uh, to their credit, I don't, I don't think either is a trained journalist, but they certainly seem to abide by the rules. They say, I've gotten this source from you know two or three people. I'm still not sure if it's true, but I'll tell you just so you know. 
or they'll say, you know, I've only gotten one source for this, but I think it's true. It seems to be consistent with everything else that's coming out. So they're very good. They, they seem to have a, an ear to the ground as close as they can. And, and the thing that I think that's so fascinating about them or so interesting, so compelling about them is that they actually speak in narratives, right? That's what's really missing from the media today, right? We don't tell stories because if you tell the story, you contextualize everything up to that event. And then you can be the judge. Even you talk about the fog of war. Well, the fog of war is compounded by the fact that we don't have stories that help us sift through that fog, right? But you know, if you if you tell the story of the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States saw an opportunity to sort of expand its hegemony over you know European countries on the border. They have uh, included, I think, thirteen countries since two thousand in NATO. They're trying to include Ukraine so that they can sort of expand their markets, sell weapons to them, all these things. And, and if you sort of tell that narrative, then what I can say is this, I don't know the truth. I don't speak Russian. I'm not in Ukraine, right? But if you think about the narrative of what's happening, then whenever you hear Vladimir Putin speak, and I actually heard a, a video from uh, about a week ago where he was discussing the biological weapons labs. If you sort of contextualize the story of what's happened in Ukraine going back to the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? or in Russia uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, then everything he says about the biological weapons that they've discovered, biological weapons labs they've discovered in Ukraine, which were operated by the United States, makes perfect sense, right? And everything that the U.S. media says to knock down that story also makes perfect sense, right? In the context of being a lie, right? Probably. And so that's what I think is the real failure. And we've seen that happening over over many years, right? But the, the news media has become much more authoritarian. Esther, you and I were raised in a, in a journalistic milieu where we actually did reporting. We asked people, what did they think? And not just people who had offices and secretaries and, and you had to make an appointment with, but people, average people, ordinary people, people on the street, people who were experiencing the policies that we were writing about. And that's what's really missing. That's why I think uh, we've got this culture of ignorance and it's deepened, I think, just in the last six weeks. And it's, as, as W.E.B. Du Bois said, the United States will destroy ignorance or ignorance will destroy the United States. It's good that you mentioned the idea of just speaking to everyday people, because I only see that if I listen to or hear Russian media. For example, people, some of the people coming out of Maripol who disputed this claim that the Russians were shooting at them in, as they tried to leave. They said that the, the Azov battalion uh, tried to keep them from leaving and tried to use them basically as a human shield, which is what the Russians were saying, and that uh, they were, in some cases, they were actually being shot at by the Azov battalion. So um, I think that's really important to just talk to people. And I don't, I, I think that the corporate media here is very careful about the people who they grab. I don't know if someone told that to someone at CNN, whether they would put well, it on I'm the I'm sure air. they would not. That's I'm how sure bad I think it is, here. you know. Right. But anyway, I'm going to take a brief break and I'll be right back. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam and I'm speaking to journalists Ben Norton and John Jeter for this month's episode of On the Media. And Ben and John, I know that Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, has been on a, a tour, you know, around the world. He spoke before Congress here. He spoke in Canada. He spoke, I believe, in Germany. He also spoke in Israel. And, you know, 
I think as an example of what it means to kind of have your history turned around or when you start to kind of either, you know, you start to smoke your own supply or you start believing your own BS. He went to the Knesset in Israel and told this narrative about how Ukrainians had saved Jews during World War II and saying that as a way of kind of, you know, uh, building friendship, I guess, or, you know, making some over overture during his visit. Well, anyway, there, of course, there was a huge controversy after that because, well, the people listening to him, they knew the real truth. And maybe some Ukrainians, those who were pro-Soviet, helped the, helped the Jews, but there were mass regiments of Ukrainians who fought with Nazi Germany. They are the predecessors of the Nazis still there. These are people who followed Stefan Bandera uh, and other uh, notorious war criminals who murdered uh, scores of Jews, scores of Polish people, Roma people, in advance of the Nazis even getting there, right? So I give that as an example of how even though uh, the West thinks it's winning this media war or this information war, they are still tripping over their own feet. And when I saw the story about Zelensky in Israel, I thought that was a, a prime example. But anyway, in terms of some of the actual controversies that have come out, one of the things that I think has happened uh, because of this rah-rah coverage we're getting in the, in the West and people, they think that Ukraine is winning the war. They think that, you know, the Russians are... I don't know, in a morass like, you know, Afghanistan or whatever already. Scores of Nazis, neo-Nazis or, you know, combatants are streaming into or were streaming into Ukraine to fight for Ukraine or with Ukraine. And a lot of these people were killed in a missile strike by Russia on a military camp near the Polish border. And uh, many of those people, the survivors, many of them have fled and gone home because they realize this is a real war. It's not Call of Duty. It's not a video game. And what do you think uh, about the idea of one result of this media coverage is giving people in the United States, people under the spell of corporate media throughout the world, this idea that they should go and fight in Ukraine? There's no question that the major corporate outlets are encouraging people around the world to go fight an insurgency. We saw Hillary Clinton go on TV and say exactly that. She actually compared the policy to the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And I should remind listeners that what was the result of that war waged, the proxy war waged by the US, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 1980s? The CIA helped give birth to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban by giving tons of weapons and billions of dollars of assistance and training to the Mujahideen. So we've seen that the U.S. is using the same strategy that gave birth to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. They gave birth to ISIS in Syria. They're now reusing that strategy in Ukraine to create an insurgency to try to bleed the Russians. And we've also seen a major economic war through the, in the form of brutal, suffocating sanctions. And these sanctions not only hurt the Russian government, they hurt the Russian people first and foremost. They hurt 140 million people, civilians. The US and the EU have boasted that they're trying to devalue the Russian currency, the ruble, which has 
fallen, at least initially, it fell by 40%, although it's actually gone back up a bit in value since. So if the value of your currency falls by 40%, that means that average working people, they just, they just got a 40% pay cut. Their pensions, retired people in Russia, their pensions were reduced by 40%. So this is an attack on the people of Russia. And then finally, there's the information war, which we've been talking about. Esther, you talked about a very important detail, which is the propaganda campaign being waged by Zelensky. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that. Who is Zelensky? Zelensky is an actor. He is quite literally an actor. He had no political experience becoming before becoming president. In fact, his only experience at being president was playing a president on a TV show called Servant of the People that was ironically funded by Kolomnoisky, who is the same billionaire oligarch who then funded his political campaign and his political party, which doesn't even really exist. It was a platform to get to get him elected. His political party is called the Servant of the People, which is named after the TV show. This is the kind of surreal world we live in. Zelensky's not a real leader. He's a puppet. He does whatever Western governments who prop him up want him to do. And he's been going on this PR drive around the world, spreading this ridiculous propaganda. In the U.S., he spoke before the Congress and got a standing ovation from both Democrats and Republicans. He uh, insanely compared the Russian incursion into Ukraine to Pearl Harbor, trying to get the U.S. to directly militarily intervene. He's been calling for a no-fly zone, which would mean World War III. A no-fly zone is another propaganda term that we've seen that's become very mainstream. What it really means is shooting down Russian planes, i.e. bringing NATO and the U.S. into a hot war with Russia, i.e. a World War III and the potential for a nuclear exchange. And then finally, the disgusting, insulting attempts to try to rewrite the history of the Nazi Holocaust to portray Russia, which defeated the Nazis as the new Nazi Germany, is so disgusting, is so insulting, not only in the comments by Zelensky, we also saw the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, on MSNBC. He actually whitewashed Hitler, claiming that Putin is worse than Hitler because Hitler apparently never killed Germans, which is an insane statement. I mean, this is Holocaust revisionism. And you mentioned Zelensky's attempt to try to portray Ukraine as a force that defeated Nazi Germany. No, 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 no. Let's be clear here. The Soviet Union sacrificed 27 million people to defeat the Nazis, fascism, in World War II. And I want to remind the audience that 14 million of those 27 million people who died in the Soviet Union were from the Russian Federation. 7 million were from the Ukrainian SSR, but they were in the Soviet Red Army. And many of the 7 million Ukrainians who died in World War II on the Soviet side, they were fighting against Ukrainian Nazi collaborators in the western part of Ukraine, which is the base for the insurgency against Russia, which is the base for NATO. And in 1991, early 1991, before the Soviet Union was broken up in a counter-revolutionary coup, there was a survey of what people wanted to stay in the Soviet Union. The vast majority of Ukrainians wanted to stay, especially in the eastern region. It was only in the western region that had been part of Poland that were full of all of these Nazi collaborators who wanted to leave the Soviet Union. And that today is the base 
for these neo-Nazis and far-right extremists, and they are the people who are being backed by NATO as a proxy now in this war. Right. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, I realize I'm, I'm rapidly running out of time and we have so much to cover, but bouncing off of your comment, I think it's important. You brought up the issue of the no-fly zone and it's been really disgraceful to watch any of these White House press briefings and to hear the reporters almost begging for a no-fly zone. Um, basically, you know, well, why can't we get one? You, the public wants one without giving, first of all, that context that we've been trying to give on this show, too, that it's not a ceasefire. It's a, a no-fly zone means a, a battle for air supremacy. And you have Russians shooting down U.S. planes or NATO planes and NATO and U.S. trying to shoot down Russian planes. But um, I, I thought that I should maybe end with that idea about the fact that I think that one of the most dangerous issues in terms of the coverage is the fact that we are potentially we're potentially dealing with a nuclear war, a nuclear attack, a nuclear uh, fight between the world's two largest nuclear powers. And that doesn't really come through in terms of the, what the media is cheerleading for. So, John, maybe, you know, you can have the last word just talking about the, the fact because you talked about stories before and the fact that in not giving people the full story, not giving people the the full facts, the full narrative, it leaves it leaves this moment very decontextualized and and people will actually find themselves egging on. I just a world war. I, I think people should understand, and I, I don't consider myself a particular fan of Putin, but I'll tell you this, I respect him. He is a man of intellect, and he's also a man of his word. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. And one thing I know for sure is that Putin has been preparing for this moment since the no-fly zone established in Libya in 2011 led to the destruction of the most prosperous country on the African continent and the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi, who was at the time, arguably the leading Pan-Africanist in the world. That left an indelible impression on Putin. And so I say all that to say this, you can talk all that nonsense about a no-fly zone if you want. I guarantee you, nobody in Europe is going to try to enforce a no-fly zone because they understand that means you will like you will almost certainly have to shoot down a Russian plane, and don't nobody want that smoke. Russia is not to be trifled with, right? They are not to be trifled with. Okay, well, I'm going to have to leave it there. I, I think that we should uh, reconvene our conversation uh, next month or in a few weeks to talk about uh, where things stand at that time, because certainly the whole subject of China and the reconfiguration of the world's economy and how the media really isn't reporting on that. That's a whole different conversation. But, uh, I do know that, that, that is a big part of it. See, when we think about what we see on TV or what we hear on the radio or what we hear online, see online, that, uh, all of a sudden the, creeping recession, the, the real the horrific fallout from the pandemic, up to a million people dead here, the 
a tremendous job loss, the whole uh, reconfiguration of the economy here before this happened. That's kind of falling out of the news, right? And so Biden uh, and so many politicians can basically say, well, you, if you're hurting, you know, Putin did it. <laughs> and so, you know, that's something that we have to be uh, sure to take note of as we talk about what the news media is covering or not covering. But anyway, I better go. Uh, I want to thank my guests, journalists, John Jeter and Ben Norton. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode of On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, on patreon.com, at On the Ground Show. Our podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, is also on all your podcast platforms. The new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Shwerba by Salif Keita, Origin by Isaiah Roussan, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground dot org thank you 